Welcome to RAS Talk, a podcast on recirculating aquaculture systems and sustainable food production. Brought to you by RAS Tech, the premier publication for RAS professionals. This podcast is sponsored by Innovacy. Innovacy, aquatic solutions built for life. Hello and welcome to another episode of RAS Talk. I'm your host, Marilyn de Guzman, and co-host Brian Vinci is here as well. Hello, Brian. How are you today? I'm good. Uh, spring has finally starting to spring. <laughs> <laughs> it's still a little bit cold here from where I am, but we're getting some longer daylight, so that's good. I, I can't believe it's more than a year now since the pandemic hit, but there seems to be some good developments on the vaccine front, right? And, and I've, certainly in the U.S., I've been seeing some. Yeah, uh, and hopefully that will have a positive impact on uh, conferences and uh, workshops for the aquaculture industry. You know, I I think South by Southwest is going on now, and they had an aquaculture panel, and that was virtual, which is, um, you know, unfortunate. But maybe towards the end of this year and into next year, we'll be able to get together. We haven't rescheduled the innovation workshop just yet, but I know that you guys have rescheduled the RASTEC conference. Yes, we have. Uh, We've uh, moved it to March next year, but we do have, as usual, some virtual events that we've lined up for this year. So we're excited to be hosting that. So it's going to be a trio of virtual events going to be on June 9th, September 14th, and November 3rd. So the first one is June 9th which is focused on investors. Uh, it's a RAS Investors Forum. So really, really looking forward to that one. And I see you're also involved at the um, with the Aquaculture Europe. That's the virtual event that's happening in April. Yes, and it's been difficult to communicate with our stakeholders the results of research like we normally do. So we have taken up the virtual events as much as we can and and then also expanded our social media presence and, and done the podcast. And it, that's really helped to continue to get the information on the research results out um, as quickly as possible to folks who are looking to improve their operations. Right. And speaking of podcasts, we're excited to introduce our guests for this episode. Uh, today, we'll, we'll be discussing not just feeds, but feeds for RAS environments. So without further ado, let's introduce our guests, Brian. Yeah, so we have John Ng, uh, president of Hudson Valley Fish Farm, producers of Rasgro New York Steelhead, located outside New York City. Good morning, John. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. We also have George Nardi, uh, vice president of Aquaculture Services at Innovacy. Um, and George, you're coming to us from New Hampshire? That's right. Yeah, Brian, and I'm uh, glad to be here. And I echo both of your sentiments about uh, getting back to in-person conferences and meetings because so much is done and picked up uh, in the hallways and networking, not just the um, presentations. I'm looking forward to getting back at it. Finally, we also have Kim Ekman, Senior Product Developer at Biomar. And I guess it's good afternoon for Kim, who's uh, based in Europe. Yeah, it's it's afternoon here. It's four o'clock. Um, thank you so much for inviting me. We're thrilled to have you. We hope to have a robust discussion about feeds for the RAS environment that perform well in the RAS environment. So, but I want to ask each of you, um, why are feeds critical in a RAS environment? And I'm going to start with Kim and then go to George and then John. So Kim, why are uh, feeds critical in a RAS environment specifically? If we look at the big, big picture, you can say feed is more or less the sole input of organic matter. So what cannot be utilized by the fish uh, needs to be dealt with by physical or biological or even chemical water cleaning facilities. And, and all of these can be uh, a bottleneck for the biomass production. 
So, um, so it's it's really really important that the feed are suited for RAS in order to be able to maximize the biomass production in RAS. Efficient RAS feeds would, would help reduce those bottlenecks in the system. Right. And at Biomar, do you have RAS specific feeds, or do you have you know more generic species specific feeds? Uh, we, we have RAS specific feeds and, and also those RAS specific feeds, we have a, a product line called Orbit uh, and, and that is, is all actually also species specific. So we have Orbit for uh, rainbow trout, we have Orbit for uh, Atlantic salmon and, and also some marine species. It's very specific feeds uh, and they do actually separate quite a bit from standard feeds, you could say. Oh, interesting. Um, George, how about your thoughts on why feeds are critical in a RAS environment and talk about your experience on early rearing in the marine RAS environment? Sure. First, in general, um, I would echo Tim's comments. Um, you know, having been um, experienced at both RAS levels and also in, in, in net pen environments, um, clearly, you know, the feed, when designing a feed for a RAS system, you're not only designing it for the fish, you have to design it for the system, which is something that, you know, in net pan operations or flow through operations where the feed can leave the system readily, it, it, that hasn't been a focus. So you have to think of that environment, that RAS environment, so that the, the feed not only performs for the fish, but it's performing for the system that it's going into. And uh, early in my career, this was, um, highlighted in the in the hatchery because in the hatchery particularly with marine species you need to feed frequently and the the issue was the the lipids in the feeds would affect the system in particular things like foam fractionation so you really had to get to know how to feed in a RAS system at, at the hatchery level which is further reflected now in, in grow out but it's it's different you know the the feed of course is your most expensive operational component so you need to learn how to use it in the system you're working within and and to me that's what's um why feeds are so critical and how they perform at RAS, not just at the hatchery but the grow out and and in the hatchery you know you're particularly concerned about those small feed particles that have high surface area and can impact water quality tremendously and timing that with the weaning stage of the fish. So feed and RAS, you know, I, I, I don't think I need to say anything to this crowd, but it's, it, they go hand in hand. You need to know what you're doing for the fish as well as for the systems and the effect on the system. Right. And hopefully uh, John can comment on this as an operator of a large multi hundreds of tons steelhead farm. Um, and how they have been able to tailor their RAS feeding and feeds to their operation. John, how about you? Feeds in the RAS environment? I echo both what Kim and George is saying. It's, it's the most important input, shy of the water source, of course. The challenge there is really is water quality and performance in our, our biofilters. The, the promise of RAS is being able to, to locate uh, these facilities close to market, right? And uh, and the challenge there is uh, adopting feeds that work in uh, various methodologies. I, I, I don't believe there's two uh, RAS farms built alike in the entire world, right? 
Um, but really what's important is that, you know, every facility is different and the feeds need to be adapted almost in, in sense, at least as George says, we need to learn how to use the feed into the, in, in our system. Uh, add on to that, the drive to further reduce uh, or further increase the research rate. Uh, so we're using less water, right? So uh, water quality becomes even more important as well as real, you know, really have to look at the, the regulatory requirements for the outflow uh, of our effluent and the, the impacts on, uh, uh, on those uh, regulatory requirements from feed, right? Like uh, one of the biggest things we have to worry about is our phosphorus levels, right? I think beyond all of that is the importance to uh, the image and the promise of RAS is that we're producing something uh, more sustainable, uh, and to that part of it is that we're putting into our fish all the checkpoints that it's all natural. We're trying to go for uh, non-GMO uh, fillers and uh, ingredients. And uh, ultimately, as, as we can discuss later on in this podcast, uh, those uh, alternatives to fish meal and, and fish oil, because that's probably the, the driving force is to reduce ocean catch into uh, our, 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 you know, this method of production. John, you mentioned something I want to drill down on, which is water quality effects uh, on the biofilter as a result of your feed. Have you found that certain feeds allow your biofilter to perform at a greater tan removal efficiency, or um, have you seen a feed change that has resulted in uh, poorer performance? Can you comment on that? We didn't get to a point where we were tracking you know, uh, I think adequate data in our in our initial startup, but we had early issues with some of our feeds when we started up our biofilters. That's something that you know we need to research a little bit more uh, since since we've been in operation for about five years now. You know, we're we've been around for seven. We've actually actually started operating in the, for five. We switched feeds a number of times as tests, uh, as trials. And uh, each of the companies we've dealt with, we've dealt with Baramar, uh, Scredding, and Ewas, uh, there's differences in their performance. Um, but the one that stands out to me the most is actually some of the issues we've had starting up our biofilters. Yeah, we've noticed recently that as we've started experiments and changed from a base control diet to a, the study diet, that our biofilters have to go through an adjustment period, that they're... Um, either not processing the tan as readily as they were before, vice versa. So it's something that we're going to start looking at as we begin studies to take more data on on biofilter performance. Uh, From your different perspectives, if you were to sort of identify the criteria for RAS-friendly feeds, uh, what are those going to be? So let's start with Kim um, in terms of the uh, ingredients or the, the materials that go into a RAS feed. I think actually that that to begin with, uh, it's not so much the ingredients. It's it's the, the the physical pellet quality is is really important. So we don't have dust and fines coming into a system, and uh, and although of course you, we know that that uh, fecal material uh, we don't want accumulation of that. Uh, the dust and fines coming from feed are so much more potent 
when, when it comes to fueling uh, unwanted by, by um, bacterial growth in a system. So I think the physical pellet quantity when it comes to dust and fines and also free fat, they could all be detrimental for the water quality. Uh, besides that, of course, we, another key point would be to have uh, a stable uh, feces coming from the fish which of course would make it easier to remove from the system. In that respect, we actually do have a, a raw material grading system for predicting the feces quality of a, of a given rat's feed. Uh, besides that, uh, it's of course critical that all the ingredients have uh, highly digestible nutrients, correctly nutritionally balanced for both the species, but also at the life stage of the fish you're growing, which in turn would maximize the nutrient retention and reduce undigested feed components and catabolites, which in turn, of course, would reduce the load on your filter systems and maximize the production. And George, uh, from your perspective in the design process, uh, what, what can you say about that? Echoing, yes, very, you know, low fines, pellet integrity and stability. So you don't contribute to water quality degradation as opposed to rearing in a net pen, there is no dispersion model. The dispersion model is the system. So your, your system uh, has to be able to handle it. So you want your, your resulting feces post-digestion to lend themselves to rapid removal from the system. So a more of a bound feces that can be readily removed and not dissolved into the water is, is best. And, you know, Kim has mentioned fats. That's a, a very important because there's really nothing in our designs that address fats like they do protein and ammonia. And if the pellet doesn't have the integrity to sort of hold on to the fat, uh, you could get saponification or uh, fouling, for example, of drum filters. And once that happens, it's a chain event for poor water quality. So, all of the things Kim said are important, and I'd like to add in your system, looking at the density of that pellet, are we producing in a freshwater system, a brackish water system, or a saltwater system, which affects the pellet uh, behavior in the water column? So is it sinking super fast to the bottom, which isn't necessarily a good thing, or is it staying suspended on the surface, which may not be necessarily a good thing. So that has to be taken into account when you look at your overall system and your feed selection and working with your feed supplier to adjust density potentially. It's a very right. good point. I agree. And that's building on um, John's comment earlier that no two RAS systems are alike. So uh, John, can you comment on this? Like what process or thought process goes through when you're deciding on um, the RAS feeds? Like are you in consultation with your designers, with your feed suppliers? C can you talk a bit more about that? Well, uh, I guess in, in my position, that's, uh, <laughs> that's, uh, that's not in my pay grade. That's, that's not the question. but. Um, Really, uh, I, our GM and our aquaculture manager really work closely with our, our feed suppliers to kind of curtail and, and try on a, I guess, a small volume basis on different feeds and different criteria. Uh, for me, I look at it really as part of a, a story that, that I'm trying to market, which I, I face at, at the marketplace every day, mm -hmm. right? And the, the feed story is something that's you know, that were questioned on, every, you know, virtually every time. 
uh, uh, someone challenges us or someone just inquires about our, our product is what do we put into our fish? Uh, so for me, uh, what's you know paramount is part of that story that uh, again saying what we want to do is having an all natural product. Uh, the, the avoidance of antibiotics and uh, vaccines and pollutants ultimately are alternatives to the fish meal, fish uh, oil as they uh, further develop. That's kind of something we look very hard to, to try to adopt. The, the challenge for us is with a company we've built over the last few years, you know, it's not just swapping out a feed into our system for, or, or even a particular cohort going in, is that we have, you know, we face a pretty large risk, uh, whether we're, you know, uh, if the feed doesn't perform well and the fish are a little bit smaller, uh, or, or you know, some, some catastrophe happens and uh, we lose a production cycle, the impact to us is not just uh, losing some fish, but losing marketplace, uh, losing uh, the reputation we've built, uh, th- those are challenges we face. And that, those are some of the concerns I have when we do look at, at feed. It's a big risk for us to consider changes. Uh, we need some history in, in uh, the feed product. Uh, we want to know it's performed well. And, you know, uh, unfortunately for for the system we've designed, and I think that goes along with most systems that are designed, uh, they're not designed to, you know, have multiple production streams or multiple production lines yet, right? We, most of these facilities I've seen are, are singular production lines. So uh, we don't want to risk losing a group of fish in the, in the middle of a, of, of a cycle or which results in a gap in our production. Kim, this is Brian. I- was wondering, um, put you on the spot a little bit, if that's okay. Sure. H- how would you address uh, a grower like John's concerns about changing feed and the effects on the system and the performance? He specifically said that the feed performance is critical to their place in the market, and it has their feeds have to perform well and, and allow the system to maintain operation and good water quality. But how do you approach growers? who have these concerns that want to be assured of um, a RAS specific feed performing well and not just having, you know, fecal binder in it that'll, that'll keep the feces solid. I, uh, I think the, the, the main thing is for us to stabilize the performance of a feed. We, we, we use models uh, in, in nutritional models that, that actually will predict the performance of a feed when it comes to FCR and growth. We have models saying that this much digestible energy per kilo of feed and this much digest protein per kilo of feed combined with a certain amount of amino acids will give you this feed performance in the system. Uh, besides this, obviously, you, you, can, you can obtain both the digestible energy level and the digestible protein level using several different raw materials. But as I'm sure John knows also, <laughs> is that that uh, these systems are not, uh, they, they can be kind of delicate when it comes to changes or major changes in, in, in diet recipes. So, so what we tend to do is we, we have a kind of a strict raw material matrix when we, when we op- optimize these feeds. So from a batch of feed to batch of feed, actually the dietary recipe is, is very similar. Uh, obviously it's, is taking into account the, the differences we might have in, in raw materials, nutrient densities, uh, since we want a stable uh, performance. Uh, 
But otherwise, I, I would say making making we, we have this performance concept assuring the performance of the feed. And besides that, we, we have a, a stable uh, palette of raw materials to uh, avoid these reactions, uh, particularly from biofilters. I'm, I'm sure all of you have seen foaming from biofilters. And we know if we change recipes too much, uh, foam can actually or will generate in the systems. Right. And, and just continuing on this, Kim, I mentioned uh, binders. Is fecal binders like guar gum, is that something that you guys specifically include in RAS diets or is it included in all diets? It's not included in, in, uh, in standard uh, grower diets. It's included in, in RAS diets. And obviously, it's there's, there's a, a, a lot of different fecal binders that, that works and, and we have our right. own, of course. Yeah. Everybody has their own secret ingredient there, I guess. <laughs> Um, Greg, on this topic of, of fecal binders, um, when you are consulting with RAS growers, um, is that some of the guidance you give them is, you know, to go to a supplier feed manufacturer that has diets with fecal binders, or what is your guidance when talking to RAS growers about um, what kind of feeds they should be looking at? Well, ultimately, it's, uh, you know, that will be their uh, choice, we will bring up the the issues and the overriding design criteria that is, as, as I've been told, remember, I'm mostly come from the industry and operator side of things. And designers will often say, you know, we're not designing the system for your fish. I mean, we're designing the system for your feeding. Um, the system is built around your feeding program, um, your feed frequency, your protein level, those things are what, you know, the, the RAS system is designed around uh, almost fish irrelevant. And most importantly, for the rapid removal of the feed from the system. And that's where the, you know, a fecal binder comes in to help you know, we've seen this again, particularly, you know, first being seen maybe at a nursery stage of, of fish when we've looked at different species. Some species naturally produce a better fecal pellet than others. Um, and that's noticeable in the system and therefore in the carrying capacity or the max uh, density that that uh, system can hold. So, yes, you know, we, we bring this up, um, but also. Importantly, uh, I mentioned feeding frequency. Um, when you're feeding a tank and uh, it looks good on video, a lot of people post, you know, they throw the feed out in the tank and there's a boiling action of the fish feeding. It's, it's really not what we like to see as, as, as operators. You know, that's, that, that's indicating that the fish were too hungry, the feeding frequency wasn't uh, appropriate, and you could it could lead to some aggression and fish damage. So coming up, what we like to talk about when we're designing a system is the feeding frequency, as opposed to uh, what some people are familiar with, maybe feeding in a in a in a net pen where you're you're feeding a long time, one or two feeds, uh, with a lot of feed in in a RAS system. You want stability. Kim mentioned it for like feeding and, and stability. It's also overall stability of water quality 
without the hills and valleys of large infrequent feeding. So spreading that out as close as you can get to a 24-hour feeding cycle will end up being best for your equipment, your biofilter, and, and your system. But you really have to understand your fish, uh, their behavior, and stage they're at for your feeding program. I want to ask John, as, as a RAS operator, how do you find availability currently in the market of feeds that are that are working for you, like that are working for a RAS environment? Are you finding that the market has responded to this continuous growth in RAS and land-based aquaculture? Um, one, I guess one of the unseen benefits of what uh, we've done, or, or the, uh, the, the size of facility we've designed, is that it, it lended us uh, a, a kind of a really a benefit of scale, and it, it made it a little bit easier for you know all of our feed partners to kind of uh, adapt or or or, uh, or accommodate us in getting uh, feed to our to our door. You know, being one of the only ones up here in the Northeast right now, uh, yeah, uh, and being one of the first gives uh, gives the feed manufacturers more incentives to work to work with us. Uh, if I was smaller, uh, a mom and pop operation or, or uh, a much smaller in scale, uh, I, I think I would have a, it would have been a challenge I had to face. There are some local feed manufacturers and by local, I mean, uh, still a few hundred miles away. <laughs> um, it is a challenge, uh, but uh, I, I think I'm, I'm leveraging heavily on, on what we've done being one of the first in the market to do it and being this close to a major market like New York. We, you know, <laughs> I've leveraged that uh, to, the, to, the, to the cost of our feed suppliers. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I want to uh, bring in George. I'm curious to know what kind of collaborations happening between designers and feed manufacturers. Like, what are your thoughts on that? I, I would say... There's conversations between designers and, and, and feed manufacturers. I don't think there's, I would welcome collaboration. Certainly it is difficult because I think, you know, the different, it is a competitive landscape out there in the feed business and uh, they each have their advantages or disadvantages. I think what we tend to kind of push uh, where, you know, investing in top quality feed pays off. You know, you may pay a little more upfront, but you end up in the long run with maybe it costing you less than the uh, less costly feed to begin with because of survival, growth rate, et cetera, when it comes time to harvest. So uh, our advice is, is typically to, uh, for, the, for the business to um, invest in top quality food. It's, it's not the place to try to cut corners. And in RAS operations in general, cutting any corner is a bad idea because it's all meant to work uh, collectively. All of those components have to be optimized and, and feed as the biggest input is certainly and should be looked at as a component of your, your operation. Uh, Kim, do you have anything to add? Well, I, I think that's a very good point that, that we, it's, it's rare we have a, a, a certain collaboration with a rest signer but of course we we do have uh, we we do have discussions uh, around uh, feet uh, relevant for rest um, but uh, as as George also said it's a competitive environment so 
so it, it's 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 kind of limited. We we have uh, quite a few collaborations with customers though, um, and also uh, development projects. So RAS feed development projects uh, that are that are also currently uh, going on. So so it's more with the customer rather than with the RAS design companies. I, I want to follow up with you, uh, Kim. So in terms of the de- uh, develop the R and D that's happening now with uh, feeds and in different species, uh, like I, I I guess the uh, we've you know we've had a bit of a track record with salmonids, um, but in terms of other species, like where is it? Where what species are you looking at? Uh, uh, you know, doing R and D further for uh, feeds that are um, grass focused. Well, it's it's very much uh, it's 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 very much you can say determined by the wish of our customers. So so we have we have much of a customer driven R and D. So uh, for now, we have been working for some some um, some RAS diets for uh, for hatcheries, marine hatcheries for bass and bream, for example. And we actually have a launch uh, this in the coming month or two uh, of a new pro- uh, product for this. Um, besides that, we also are, are actually developing a, a specific RAS diets for kingfish, yellowtail kingfish mm-hmm. in RAS. Um, and of course, then we, we have a continuous development of the, of the RAS diets for, for salmonids, both salmon and trout. And to us, when considering uh, RAS feeds, it's, it's not only salmon and trout, it's also salmon in freshwater, salmon in seawater, trout in freshwater and trout in seawater because it, it's, it's different feeds, so. Interesting. Kim, I wonder if you would comment on what you see as the biggest challenge for ramping up these RAS-specific feeds. Is it the R&D, or is it a certain limiting feed ingredient or feed stuff? Or how do you see the biggest challenge for uh, ramping up the sustainable RAS-specific feed? Well, uh, I think... I think one of the main things here would be uh, some, uh, particularly when, when we talk about sustainability. Uh, one of the things when, when discussing sustainable RAS diets, we, we need to agree on what sustainability is. And, and uh, I almost uh, would bet you that we have four different opinions on what sustainability is. Uh, so, so are we talking fish and fish out ratios? Are we talking carbon footprint, deforestation? Sustainability is many things. But you, you can say it's a continuous task for us to find sustainable raw materials. And that is regardless of it being for RAS diets or uh, traditional diets. Besides having products that, that are actually very well suited for uh, and sustainable for RAS, uh, such as processed animal proteins or, or trimming soil from aquacultured species, these are typically unwanted in, in many of our markets. So, so they are unavailable. And that, of course, you can say, reduces the, the basket of raw materials we have available for, for optimizing. And let me turn to John. Um, same question, but from the farm operator owner perspective, what is the biggest challenge you see to getting uh, RAS specific feeds in, you know, having them be more sustainable? Is it something like, well, you know, having a feed mill that's, uh, closer than 500 miles away would, would surely, you know, decrease your overall carbon footprint or how do you see this uh, from the industry challenge side? I think in this past year in time of 
you know, COVID, it's the whole supply chain, you know, the, the, the vulnerability of the supply chain has really come to light. Getting food from, you know, to the local populace, uh, being local is important. So you look at the next level down, what do we get to, to feed the fish? That supply chain and having, uh, having a, a, a closer feed mill is, is so important. <laughs> where there may be no borders in between that's gonna you know like with covid we couldn't get any salmon in from norway or chile uh, for a few months right so what you know that that would have applied if we had to get ship our food across from canada to here right? so the uh, proximity is, is vital uh, not just to the supply chain issue but also to the story of reducing carbon footprint um, luckily again we're, we're at a size that you know we, we can rail uh, most of us, uh, most of our feed in um, you know, it doesn't require trucks or anything. Uh, so that's, that's one, one thing, uh, the feed ingredient, the sustainability of the ingredient, you know, uh, whether they're using, uh, uh, fish meal, fish oil, uh, source from sustainable sources or, or at least, uh, managed fisheries, uh, or, or byproduct. Those, those are also secondary yet, uh, important keys. So, John, on that point, are, is that something that you're looking for from the feed supplier? Hey, is this, you know, 18% fish oil um, that's in my diet, is that sustainably sourced or what is the source of that? Is it, you know, from the Manhattan fishery? Is it from pressings from fish processing? Are those the conversations you're having with your supplier? Uh, yes, uh, we, we want that in our uh, in our feed. Of course, uh, there's a huge bit of, uh, of give and take and back and forth because we're not at a very, very large scale. You know, a net pen farm that does what I do at like a thousand metric ton design is nothing, right? So now we're not really, uh, in terms of volume production, uh, 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 we don't command a lot of footing, right? <laughs> when we come to, come to negotiate the ingredients. So there's a lot of give and take, but those are definitely something we would want to complete that story, right? to complete the story of what everything we're doing. And George, on the same topic, when you guys are in oversee, how, how are you viewing the challenges with RAS specific feeds or, or you know, that's something you're leaving to the owner operator and the feed suppliers to work out, but I'm sure you you guys must, you know, run into this, these issues. We do, Brian, and it, it it's part of the design. It becomes a challenge because we like to make it clear to the to the client that, uh, you know, and therefore we have a fairly lengthy and detailed design phase because you can't ask the system to do something that it wasn't designed for or intended to. So, you know, changing a, a feed formulation a little bit is a little deal. Changing it a significantly becomes a, a big deal. Mm. And, and you can't expect that system to work the same. And uh, the and and salinity, freshwater uh, changes as as you know the the efficiency of of a system. Uh, so if if you tweak salinity levels, you also tweak effective production levels, and all of that goes goes in, into the design. Clearly, we we have a conversation about feed, protein content, therefore the ammonia content and really are focusing on those physical properties that Kim talked about, you know, being able to remove that feed, unwanted feed and feces uh, out of the system as, as quickly as possible. 
And anything that sort of changes that post-development, post-operation has to be looked at carefully. Right. Kim, um, on the sustainability issue, I have a question because you mentioned deforestation and uh, this is really something that's in our industry press right now is the, you know, the, re- the reduction in, in deforestation um, really at the, at the expense of, or vice versa, at the expense of, uh, you know, putting in more soybean. Um, how is Biomar uh, addressing some of these, you know, large ma- macro scale sustainability issues? We, we do have uh, the last, actually quite a lot of years now, uh, been working, uh, working on sustainable raw materials. And, uh, and obviously, besides having certified uh, raw materials, we are, we are looking into programs that helps us to um, assess uh, all of these different sustainability parameters at, at one go, because as you, as you may know, it, it's, it's extremely complicated to both be calculating um, scores for fish-in, fish-out ratios, footprints, deforestation, water use, it could be so many things so so we actually have initiated uh, this program where we where we can get an overview of the the overall um, the overall picture or or you can say sustainable uh, sustainability of a given raw material where all of these different uh, parameters are taken into account so so we we have a a more we have a more complete picture now uh, on each raw material interesting um, and now and I would say, I would say, we we of course already have raw materials that are quite far when it comes to to the sustainability issues, such as uh, grill meal or or um, algae that produces uh, marine omega threes uh, or or uh, guar meal, which is a byproduct from guar gum production. So, so it is it is uh, something that is not only. Uh, a d- d- daily daily business for us, but it's also a demand from most of our customers. So, and follow up on that sustainability, I want to get uh, John's mm. uh, point of view on that. So, what are your thoughts on these emerging alternative protein sources, insect plant based, insect based? Um, sort of, can, can you talk a bit more about what your thoughts on that are? Uh, you know, I, I'm all for it. Like I said, uh, uh, it, it kind of completes the picture for what we are proposing, what we're kind of promising. You know, land-based farm addresses a lot of the, uh, the environmental issues of, of, the, uh, of uh, ocean farming and, and whatnot. Uh, but that, that last bit is really uh, we're not wanting to take a, uh, any more fish out of the ocean or, or more importantly, fish off of some, you know, uh, someone else's plate to put fish on someone else's plate is, is a, is, Kind of the, to in my mind, a, a kind of the last uh, last steps to kind of make this whole circle work. Uh, but as I mentioned before, for our production vehicle, it, it's a substantial risk. Um, that's why I, I, I believe it's it's so important, like to to have institutions like the Freshwater Institute and uh, some of our other uh, academic institutes doing a lot of the research, uh, third party research for that. Uh, to kind of prove some of these things work uh, before we get them into, you know, uh, uh, the industrial cycle, right? Right. And many of these really are um, in sort of the R&D, not quite yet to commercial scale. And I want to get your opinion, Kim. It's one thing to create all these alternative protein sources as feed for fish. 
And then it's another to optimize them for RAS. So what's Biomar's position on these other alternative uh, fish-free protein sources? We do use uh, a lot of resources every year to test new uh, alternative protein raw materials. And and, uh, luckily, you can say... uh, most fish species respond very well to proteins coming from outside the ocean. Uh, so terrestrial proteins are, are very well accepted in most fish species. It's more, you can say, the, the real issue here is the, is the lipid part of the diet, which, which we, we tend to fix using these uh, marine omega-3 uh, LT sources. Uh, but when it comes to the protein sources, you can say, if we have the, a group of, you can say, single-cell proteins like fungal proteins or bacterial proteins, uh, it's something that we have been testing actually for almost a decade. Um, and some work uh, nicely, others work uh, less nicely. Um, and uh, you can say when, 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 it, when we find out that, that uh, you can get, uh, when you find out you can get these performance on the fish, of course, the next step is uh, is the, the the you can say the suitability of that raw material for a rest feed because it's we, we cannot include ten percent of a raw material which will give the fish good growth if we crash a rest system uh, after that just you know because the, the the feed pellets or the feces are all over the place besides the single cell proteins we of course have insects which we have also been testing for more than a decade. And also we've been looking into uh, projects where we have uh, some external projects where uh, the use of bivalves have been mentioned. Uh, and that is actually part of the compensatory culture. So, so we, yes, we are constantly looking for, for new alternative protein sources. George, is this something that uh, you're thinking about as a, as, as a designer, from the technology perspective, all these other um, alternative feed sources? Well, yes, I'm glad you asked that question of Kim because um, I'm certainly not a feed manufacturer, but but based on my earlier comment where we're RAS, you're really designing for both the fish and the system. And so I think, you know, Kim is addressing the fish and I think this is where that collaboration that John was referring to with Brian and the Freshwater Institute, where we, we, we look at an alternative protein and we, it passes the first checkpoint, which is it's as good as or better than other things in terms of a diet and fish performance. But how does it stand up in a RAS system? How does it affect the drum filter, the biofilter, uh, water quality in general? And does it pass on at that level. And, and so, you know, that would be my question. I can only ask questions when a client might suggest, hey, we're going to be using this new diet. Will that present a problem? I don't have the answer for that. And George, I think it, it probably is on the feed manufacturer to uh, support their diet, not just to mill it and, and provide it to you. And in fact, I'm uh, 100% sure that Biomar uh, provides this kind of support as the Screding and um, Cargill EWOS and, and other suppliers out there. They're not just selling a diet, they're, they're supporting it, uh, checking its performance, and of course, always modifying it. We are happy at, at the Institute to work with feed suppliers on uh, new and innovative diets and, and test those out for the industry and then make those results um, readily available. That, that's definitely mm-hmm. something that 
we feel is part of our function. I want to thank all three of you for the really interesting discussion today. And mm -hmm. uh, I'll wrap up here and just say thank you and turn it over to Marilyn. Yes, thank you again for joining us today. It's, it certainly was a very, very interesting and engaging discussion. I want to thank you again, guys, for coming. And Brian, I will see you next episode. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Bye. This Rest Talk episode is sponsored by Innovacy. Innovacy, aquatic solutions built for life. For the latest RAS-related news, visit rastechmagazine.com. Join us again next time for another engaging conversation on RAS Talk.